Hear now the very words of God as they are given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the first chapter, verses 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end." And may the Lord bless this reading, this familiar uh, set of verses to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to, to bring it alive and show us new things. I'm on. Okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be in your presence. We are so grateful to be in your word. We are so grateful to turn to that word now and to let your Holy Spirit illuminate it for us. We realize that if it were not for you, if it were not for the Spirit um, acting with these words, they'd just be words on a page. We wouldn't comprehend them. But Lord, I know that we cannot fully comprehend what's before us. I know that. I know that we're going to fall short But Lord, may it lead us in our hearts to the only place it can possibly lead us, and that is to worship, to worship you, El Elyon, and the son of El Elyon. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the year was 2007. I believe the month was August, and as I remember it, I was standing in a dusty crossroads in one of the most remote, remote places on earth, watching an old Jeep disappear into a cloud of dust into the distance. I was in a little community that is known as La Belle Mer, and some of you are familiar with that place. You've been there with us many times, but others of you are not real familiar with our ministry in Haiti, which has sort of been put on hold here for the, during this pandemic because they are suffering from the same thing that we are. But nonetheless, um, La Belle Mer is, as I said, one of the most remote places that you'll ever be. It's not remote in the sense that it's the farthest away. It's remote in the sense that no one ever goes there. It is of a, a no significance to anyone. It's literally just a little crossroads in the middle of rural Haiti where several mud huts have grown together and there's a community community that lives there. Now, getting there is quite a challenge. Uh, Now, things have changed a little bit uh, in the years recently, but in 2007 when this happened, it was about a two-hour flight from Miami to Port-au-Prince. 
Port-au-Prince, we would rent our vehicles. And it was about five hours over just torturous roads to get to where we stay, which is a little town in the Plateau Central, which is the central high hilly part of Haiti, about 200 years behind the time. And we would go to a little town called Pignon, which is where Pastor Jephthé, Pastor Sidwan lived. And from there, we would branch out. Now, La Belle Mare is about an hour and a half or two hours away from there. Again, I'm not even going to say they're tortured roads. There are no roads. I mean, literally um, mule paths. And you'd get to the river, and if the river was low, you would cross it in your vehicle. On this particular occasion, we were in a bus, and the bus wouldn't make it through the river, so we got out there and walked the additional hour and a half or so until we got to La Belle Mare. Now, when we got there, as we were walking, and many of you have heard this story before, there was a young woman lying on the ground. She had fallen off of her horse on the way to a medical clinic to deliver her child. She was already in labor. But when she had fallen off the horse, she had broken her wrist and dislocated her hip. And her vital signs were barely there. But as God would have it on that occasion, we were on a medical mission. So we had nurses with us and medical supplies. And the nurses went immediately to work and were able to to stabilize her her um, vital signs, but we had a major problem. We were on foot an hour and a half away from a school bus that was still hours away from the clinic and no way to get her there. And wouldn't you know it as the Lord, again, as the Lord planned it, here comes an old Jeep that we had donated years before. Pastor Jephthah, just wondering where we were, had followed us, and I'm standing in that crossroads now watching Yolette disappear into the distance on the way to the hospital where she would safely deliver her child. I think it was her fifth or sixth. But nonetheless, as I stood there in that crossroads, I just thought about, my goodness, you know, we tend to think of the world from our own perspective. We don't think about places like La Belmera, which again is the middle of nowhere, and you would think that God would not even know what's going on there, but there he was on that day. He orchestrated that whole thing. We came by. I mean, where are the chances of some nurses walking by on that day to take care of that woman who desperately needed it? You see, the Lord is interested in the humblest of locations. Now, we're going to try to grapple with that. We're going to kind of grapple this morning with God in heaven, who is uh, above all and unknowable and untouchable and transcendent and holy, and a little place like La Belle Mare that no one even knows exists, because that's exactly what's going to happen when God enters space and time. We're going to see a tension in Luke. Uh, Whether Luke developed it on purpose or the reason that he developed, I'm not sure. But we're going to see a tension or a comparison between where we have been and where we're going. For instance, where we have been is Jerusalem on top of Mount Zion. That's the center of life as far as the Jews were concerned in those days. Everything surrounded around Jerusalem. And we're in the temple and a priest is there uh, 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 burning the incense, which was one of the most substantial things that a priest could do. And Gabriel appears to him there and tells him, of course, and we've studied this, that he's going to have a son. He didn't believe him at first. He questioned him. And of course, he was, there were consequences for his unbelief. But nonetheless, we're going to move from that scene in the center of everything to a place that is in the middle of nowhere, to a teenage girl with no 
qualifications, no merit on her own. And we're going to see the son of El Elyon. That just simply means God Most High. El Elyon is going to come to this place, this humble place to this humble girl. And that's how he's going to enter space and time. So with that, let's take a look as we try to grapple with those two extremes and look at our text. The first, um, turning to the 26th verse. In the sixth month, excuse me, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. In the sixth month, I don't know if there's any significance to that. It just helps us keep the timeline between the birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist. Later on, when the two women get together, it gives us an idea that Elizabeth's probably pretty close to delivery at that time. But I think that what it really speaks to me is it's been 400 years since God has said anything. And, you know, all of a sudden, Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple, and Revelation starts again. Well, here we are only five months later, and Revelation occurs again. You see, we're getting ready to head into the most exciting, the most complete time of Revelation when God reveals himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, nonetheless, it's Gabriel again. That's why we're going to draw the connection between what was going on in, in, in Jerusalem and what's going on here. Now, last week in the, in the after church, we talked about Gabriel, an archangel, one of the, the, the two named angels. But we also pointed out that when, a, when Gabriel appears, it usually has something to do with the eschatological kingdom of God. In other words, God's redemptive plan coming into focus. Of course, he came for John the Baptist. He now with Jesus. We assume that he is the angel that appeared to Joseph later on. So uh, Gabriel is the one who is sent from God. Now we saw last week that he says to Zechariah, I am Gabriel. I live in the presence of God. And so that's got to have stunned Mary, and we will see that in, in a moment. But nonetheless, it, it's, it's, it's where he is sent that is so extraordinary. He is sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, don't let that translation city throw you off, because city, the underlying Greek word is polis, and it just simply means a a population area, a place where people live. It doesn't mean a city in the sense of what we consider to be a city. And certainly, that's the reason I brought up that story about La Belmere, a crossroads with a couple of mud huts around it. It's closer to La Belmere than it is to our idea of a city. Nazareth was in the middle of nowhere. No one went to Nazareth. There was no main road that passed through Nazareth. There was no commerce there. There was no export there. It was nothing more than a crossroads and some probably stone houses built together as there was a tiny community. So therefore, we know that Nazareth is of of little significance as far as the overall scheme of things up until that point. Now, we are told in Matthew that Nazareth was prophesied. There was a prophecy concerning Nazareth. He will be a Nazarene. We don't really know where that prophecy is. So more than likely, it was a general prophecy where the prophets are telling us the king of kings, the son of El Elyon, is going to be born into the most humble of all situations that you can possibly imagine. So I want you to make comparison already because I believe that's what's here. 
On the one hand, you have Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of Jewish life. Not only are we in Jerusalem, we're in the temple, which is the center of all life as far as Jews are concerned. Not only are we in the temple, but we are standing in front of the Holy of Holies, which is where God comes. You couldn't get into a more connected spot than Zechariah was when the angel came to him. We're going all to the other extreme. We're going to a town that no one knows. No one thinks anything good comes from Nazareth, as Nathaniel will later say. It's Hicksville. It's of no importance or no significance to anyone. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Notice the the tension that is here. Notice the tension that exists between the two locations. But Gabriel didn't come to a location. Gabriel came to a person. The person was Mary. Notice what he says, or what Luke says in the 27th verse. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Um, Virgin, in the way that it is used here, is a word that means a young lady or a young woman of marriageable age. And who has not been with a man, who has never had intercourse with a man. Um, And and it it tends as much as anything to pinpoint the age of that maiden. For instance, probably Mary is somewhere between 13 and 20 years old. That's the time that they were set aside and, 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 and betrothed, if you will, to a husband in those days. So she's probably very young. Now, once again, extremely important when we put it into the prospect of Prophecy, because Isaiah, 700 years before, told us that this was going to happen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And, of course, you know that the first chapter of Matthew, the angel, who we assume was Gabriel, probably was, came and he quoted that passage from Isaiah and said, this is, the, this is he, this is Jesus. Uh, this is what Isaiah was talking about. But it's not just that fulfillment of prophecy. What is so extraordinary about this particular birth is that it is unique in all of history. You've been here over the last couple of weeks. You know that we've been talking about some miraculous births, haven't we? We've been talking about Elizabeth, who is beyond the age of, of childbearing, and she's reflecting. We went back even to Sarah, who, who had a child at 90 years old. Now, both of those women, that was a miraculous birth. Past the age of childbearing, God opens their womb. But Mary is different. Mary is unique. No one has ever, there's never been a virgin who has been with child. There's never been a virgin before then, and there's never been since. And so therefore, Mary stands out as a completely unique experience in all of Scripture. Now, you may ask yourself, or you may question whether this narrative is historically reliable, because after all, everyone knows virgins just don't have babies. Well, we're not going to really talk about that today. We're going to wait because actually Mary's going to have the same question. <laughs> well, how is this going to work? Um, so we'll wait until next week and we'll talk about that. But let me, let me just leave you with this. That if you say that to yourself and you have those kind of doubts, you're lumping yourself with the exact same response that Zechariah had when he said back basically to the angel, oh, people don't have babies. And so if 
you have a problem understanding how God could place a fertilized egg in the womb of a, of, of, a, of, of a virgin who has never had an experience with a man? If you can't see your God doing that, then let me tell you something. You're not believing in God. That, that's, that's not the real God. That's not the God of the Bible. And you need to sit down and carefully consider your view of God because that's nothing for God to, to uh, cause a baby to grow in the womb of a virgin. Well, anyway, beyond that, we learned that she was betrothed. I'm not going to go into any detail right now about what it means to be betrothed in the Hebrew sense. We'll talk about it a little bit in the after church. But let me just tell you that it is far beyond our idea of engagement. Engagement, you, you know, you, you, you kind of promise each other. Well, if you were betrothed in this time, you were set aside. It was legal. It was formal. They are legally married in all ways except the conjugal consummation of that marriage. She still lived with her parents. He lived alone. It wouldn't be until the marriage ceremony that they came together. But in all other ways, they're legally married. They would have to get a divorce at this point if they were to split up. So this was a binding contract that was already existing with this young girl. Now, she's betrothed to a man named Joseph, who just so happened to be the town carpenter there in Nazareth. I'm not sure there's a whole lot of work in Nazareth for a carpenter, but that's who he was. And again, we're talking about insignificance here. I mean, not some great, important person with a lot of background, but just a a young girl who is betrothed to a man who is the town carpenter. But he did have one distinction, and that, of course, is of great significance, too. He was of the house of David. And that's important, because the only way that Jesus, and the angel's actually going to identify him as a king, the only way that Jesus can be a king in Israel would be to be of the house of Judah, the tribe of Judah. In the 49th chapter of Genesis, Jacob said this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So all of the rulers, all of the kings of Israel had to be descended from Judah. Well, David was descended from Judah. But in 2 Samuel, God made a covenant with David. And the covenant was that his descendants would sit upon the throne forever and ever and ever. Well, that is being fulfilled in Jesus. So even if, and and we're not a thousand percent sure about this, we'll wait till we get to the third chapter to see there's a genealogy there and there's, some people say it's just a genealogy, other people say it's actually Mary's genealogy. So there's there's a chance that Mary herself was of the house of David. But that wouldn't even matter if she, if she weren't, because it was through the father, whether it was the biological father or not, the head of household, that's how the legal lineage was established. So the fact that Joseph was of the house of David made all the difference as far as Jesus was concerned. He had the lineage necessary to be the king of kings, the king of Israel. Well, the last thing that we see in that verse is, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
I, I don't think there's anything super significant about the name Mary here. It comes from the Hebrew Miriam. And no one's really sure what Miriam means. It could mean anything from beloved one to bitter water, you know, bitter sea. And people have tried to apply a meaning to Mary's name. I, I don't think that that's what Luke's doing. I think basically what Luke is doing here is just saying this is this Mary. There's a ton of Marys in the gospel, folks. And, and, and you need, sometimes it's confusing to keep them delineated. So Luke is identifying Mary as being this Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus. Well, anyway, as we go on, um, uh, we'll, we'll see Gabriel come to Mary as he came, in a sense, to Zechariah. Look at the 28th verse. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Boy, what a swirl of controversy surrounds that seemingly unassuming verse. Well, first of all, the, 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 it's, it's a very casual greeting. Um, notice that it, he's, it says that he came to her. That actually is a word that is used for entering a house or entering a room. It's almost as if the angel's walking down the street and sort of ducks his head into the house and says, Hey, Mary, how you doing? It's a very um, a common greeting, and, and I think that probably it's one of the ways that Gabriel's trying to soften the blow of an angel from heaven appearing before you because we we know that Mary is going to be startled by that. But it's what he says that is of such great significance. He says, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, it's not that, well, it's not so much what it says that's hard for us to grasp. It's pretty simple. It's what it doesn't say. And, And so let me explain. Um, It was in the 4th century, a priest named Jerome translated the English, I'm sorry, the um, Greek and Hebrew Bible into Latin. It was called the Vulgate. And literally for over a millennia, it remained the primary text of the Roman Catholic Church. And when Jerome translated what now we translate, oh, favored one, when he translated it, he translated and said, plena gratia, plena gratia. And, and what that means is full of grace. And you may recognize the opening phrase of what is known as, as the rosary, Hail Mary, uh, full of grace, blessed is the fruit, of, um, I'm, I'm sorry, blessed are thou among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. And millions of Catholics quote this over and over and over again when they pray the rosary. Well, it's not so much that that's the wrong translation, full of grace. It is what Roman Catholicism, and this is unique to the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholicism, it is what it has done to it. It is the misinterpretation of this. In other words, they say Mary was full of grace in and of herself, intrinsically, inherently. In other words, she also, through the Immaculate Conception, is divine, and she is the one now who is imparting grace to others. She's the one who is giving the grace. They have truly made an heretical idolatry of 
MacArthur calls it Mariolatry, um, out of this cult of Mary. It is unique to the Roman Catholic Church. We will talk about it more fully in the after church. But that's not what this says. That is not the interpretation of the verses. It doesn't say Mary is inherently and in and of herself full of divine grace. It says, Mary, God is with you. He will bestow upon you a great blessing, a great grace, because you are going to be the mother of the son of El Elyon, the son of the Most High. So it it has nothing to do with Mary. There's no inherent merit in her. She's just a girl from a no-name town in the middle of nowhere. Now, granted, she was probably a good girl. I mean, Luke didn't tell us. He told us about Elizabeth and Zechariah being blameless and righteous and following the commandments of the Lord. We assume that about Mary. We can read it from the beautiful song that she's going to sing in a little while. But we're not told specifically. But even that is not the reason that Mary was chosen to be the mother of Christ. She had no merit in her of herself. It begins and it ends with grace. This is all about grace, God's grace, and it has nothing to do with Mary herself. So that has become one of the great heresies of the history of the church. Well, the angel says, O favored one, O one upon whom God will extend his grace, the Lord is with you. And that tends to bolster our interpretation of it because he's not saying the Lord is in you, that you are of God. He's saying the Lord is with you. Guess what? If you're a teenage girl without a husband and you get pregnant in first century Palestine, they, they stone people for that. And she's got some crazy story about the Holy Spirit and an angel came. Oh, right. Yes. And so therefore she's in trouble. She's another pregnant woman who's in trouble just like that woman in, in La Belle Mare that I talked about earlier. She's in desperate trouble. And the angel says, don't worry, this is a fantastic grace and God is with you. He's right there beside you. He's never going to forsake you. This is the great grace that comes upon the world. That's what the angel says. Well, Mary, as you probably would, was troubled by this. Notice what we read in the 29th verse. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The, the word there, you know, you, you remember what happened with Zechariah. The, the angel came and told him something similar. You're going to have a son. Um, and Zechariah said, old people don't have babies. <laughs> but Mary doesn't say that. But she is concerned. She's troubled. It's a word that means perplexed or confused to the point of it bothering you. A great consternation about what I've just heard. Now, there's a couple of reasons I think that Mary is troubled here, and I think they're important. First of all, she's confused and perplexed. I mean, wait a minute. Me? I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a young girl. I live in a no-name town. I mean, nobody comes to Nazareth, and all of a sudden an angel is coming directly from God, and you tell me that I am going to have a child even though I've never known a man? I mean, that's confusing, and I think she's just perplexed. I don't understand why this is happening to me. But I think there's another reason. I run squarely against the Roman Catholic view of this. And, and, and that's that I think she is so 
intensely aware of her own sinfulness. You see, that's what happens to righteous people when they're confronted with a being from heaven. When they're confronted with either a direct theophany of God, a Christophany, an angel reflective of the glory of God, Moses with the Shekinah glowing off his face. Whenever you come face to face with that, the natural response of a righteous person is to be overwhelmed with their own unworthiness, their own sinfulness. You know what happened to Isaiah when he saw the... um, When he saw God in that way, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was so intensely aware of his own sinfulness, his own defilement. Even Peter, when Jesus worked a miracle, we'll see it in the fifth chapter of Luke. After he worked the miracle, he ran down and he fell down before Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I am so aware of my own unworthiness. You know, before I was a Christian, I used to think I was pretty good. I I thought, oh, I'm better than all these other people. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm pretty good. And then I became a Christian, and I was all of a a sudden overwhelmed with my sinfulness. But you would think that as you walk with the Lord now for 20 years, as you walk with the Lord more and more, and you're going through this sanctification process, that somewhere along the way, you'd start saying, hey, I've arrived. I'm I'm doing pretty good. I'm I'm a lot better than I used to be. Not the way it works, is it? The closer you get to the light, the more glaring are those imperfections. I am so much more aware of the utter sinfulness of my sin now than I ever was when I first started walking with the Lord. You begin to get close to the light and you see the the utter sinfulness of your sin. Well, I think that's what happens when a heavenly being all of a sudden shows up and, and I think Mary was just overwhelmed by her own unworthiness at this point. Now, I want you to see something. Let's just kind of pause here for a moment. I want you to see the distinction. I want you to see the tension that is beginning to build here. Because there we were, there we were in Jerusalem, there we were in the temple, not only in the temple but the holy place, not only in the holy place but right in front of the holy of holies, and it wasn't just anyone, it was a priest. And in ancient Israel, the priest was the highest position you could be. There was no more respected position, not even the king trumped what it was to be a priest. So you have Gabriel appear to a priest in the very temple on top of Mount Zion, the, the, the most central place in all of Israel, and then all of a sudden, boom, here you are in Nazareth, a no-name town with a teenage girl with no merit on her own whatsoever. That's the tension. And we're going to see it expand exponentially in a moment. But that's the tension of the coming of the kingdom of God. And, And I think that there is actually something that I don't think Luke intended. And I want to make sure I always tell you, and I'm just seeing something. This is what I'm going to call an unintentional merism. And some of you know what a merism is. You, you know that it's, it, it's to express two extremes. In other words, when God says from, from heaven to earth, well, it doesn't mean heaven, heaven and earth. It means heaven and earth and everywhere in between. When Jesus says in Revelation, I am the alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the omega, last letter of the Greek alphabet, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, 
He doesn't mean I'm just those two extremes. He means I am those extremes and everything in between. Well, here we have an unintentional mirrorism as far as I can see it because you have up on Mount uh, Zion, you've got the holy place of the temple and now we're way down here in the, in, in the, the, po- the, 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 the backwoods in Nazareth. And what that says to me is that this Lord, this Messiah, this Christ who is coming is not just a Christ who's going to focus on the wealthy, on the, on the righteous, on the pious, but he's going to focus on all humanity, every walk, every Every ethnicity, every color, race, language, all are going to be incorporated. He's Lord over all. And he's Lord over all the world. Now, whether Luke intended to say that, I'm not saying that he did. But that's what I pick out of it. I see this tension. And as I said, that tension is just about to exponentially expand. Well, Mary is stunned. She is concerned. And the angel is going to do exactly what he did to Zechariah. He's going to assuage her fear. Look in um, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, that opening phrase, that's just what happened to Zechariah. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Two things. First of all, I don't want you to be afraid. I'm not here to hurt you. Second of all, I know your name. Okay, Mary, you were known. You were known and you were loved. I came to see you. Yes, as hard as that is for you to understand, I came specifically to talk to you, Mary of Nazareth. But then he goes on and says, you have found favor with the Lord. Now, that might sound an awful lot what we read earlier, oh, favored one, but the underlying words in the Greek are different. And it backs up what our interpretation is because it speaks of grace. You are, you have found grace from the Lord. Not you're giving grace, but you have found God has going to bestow upon you his grace. I cannot overemphasize that because so much of the world is wrapped up in this Mary Olatry um, um, cult. That we need to make sure. We're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're not going to throw Mary as being an awesome, marvelous mother and woman. But we are, all, we are not going to see her as divine in any way, form, or fashion. As Dr. Sproul said, this is one of the greatest um, travesties of theology. To take the justification and the grace away from God and give it to Mary. Give it to a creature. That's the very essence of what idolatry is. Well, then he, he tells her about the conception. He delivers the message that he has actually come to deliver there in the 31st verse. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, we learn quite a lot in that little verse. Most of it we're not going to talk about this morning because... We're going to talk about the incarnation next week. So, you notice that the, the angel doesn't tell her how she's going to conceive. He just tells her that you're going to conceive. And so that's one of the reasons she's so confused. But we do learn several things. We learn that she's going to have a child, that she is going to conceive and bear a child. We learn that that child is going to be a son. And we learn that his name will be Jesus. And that's the most significant point. We, we learned when we talked about John the Baptist that when God names a child, especially before conception, as he did John the Baptist, as he did Isaac, 
It means that this child is going to be set aside for the purpose that God has for him. He's set aside, completely consecrated to the Lord. Now, of course, we know in the case of Jesus, it goes far beyond that because he's never going to lose his divine nature. He's simply going to add a human nature. But nonetheless, that human nature is under the authority of God. Jesus made it absolutely clear. We saw it in the fifth chapter of John when we studied that. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. You remember in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus in his humanity was Under the authority of God in his divinity, he is God. Now, I know that's hard to understand, but that's what the scripture teaches us, that he was both God and man at the same time. And he will be named Jesus. Now, you know that that name, Yeshua, it means Yahweh saves. The angel who speaks to to Joseph is going to tell us that it's because he will save his people from their sins. John the Baptist will say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we know just from the name of Jesus the reason that he came. He came to save. He came to save sinners. Sinners like you and like me. He's the only path to that salvation. Well, in the next two verses, 32 and 33... We have what can only be described as a stunning revelation of Jesus, who he is, and what he will do. Talk about concise. Talk about uh, cramming a lot into just a few words. That's what we have here in the words of the angels. Let's read them, and then we'll take it apart. Verse 32, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there is no end. First of all, he will be great. Doesn't that sound like a little bit of understatement to you at the first? He will be great. I mean, great what? Well, wait a minute. Let's, let's step back and take a look at what it means and what he's saying. If you go back to um, when the angel came to Zechariah, In talking about John the Baptist, he said he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He he had a qualified greatness with Jesus. There's no qualification. There's no modification. There's nothing except that he will be great, megas in the Greek. And that literally defines what the word great means. In other words, what I think the, the angel is saying is you do not have the words in your language to describe what Jesus will be like. We could say he's magnificent. We could say he's preeminent. We could say he's all-powerful. We could add all the modifiers to it, but because you don't have a word to express him, we're just going to leave it at great. He's great above all greatness. And then he goes on and he says, and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, that phrase, and he will be called... Let me explain that a little bit. Because Calvin points this out. He says that it tells us what it means and what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that somewhere along the line, men, human beings, are going to decide, hey, he was great. He's the son of the Most High. No, this speaks of a pre-existent greatness, a pre-existent sonship. 
In other words, from all eternity past, this child who is getting ready to come and to be placed into the womb of this teenage peasant girl has been forever and ever the second member of the Godhead, the Son of the Most High. King of kings and Lord of lords already. He's already that when he comes. He will be called what he has always been called, the Son of the Most High. You see, this is what John meant, folks, when we studied it in the study of John. When John said, and the Word became flesh, the essence, the logos, the mind, that which is, is in, intrinsically God became flesh and he dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. The glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said he is the very radiance of God's glory, the imprint of his nature. It's what Paul meant when he said in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It is what Jesus meant in the, in the high priestly prayer when he said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the foundations of the world. That is the one who is getting ready to come and enter space and time. Okay, pause. Let's just pause a little bit here and see if we can understand this. I told you there was a tension between Zechariah and the temple and Mary down here in Nazareth. Let's take Zechariah and just throw him out. Let's just get rid of him. Because now all of a sudden we have a totally different situation. It's not, the, it's not Jerusalem. It's not the temple. It is heaven. The throne room of God. It is not Zechariah. It's not John the Baptist. It is the son of El Elyon. See, that's what that word means in Hebrew. El Elyon. God most high. You know, the Hebrews would have names for God. They, they didn't have multiple gods. It was all the same God. But the, the, the names of God give us a window into his nature. First time we hear this name is in Genesis 14. Abraham runs into a strange man out of the middle of nowhere. And we are told that his name was Melchizedek, king of Salem. Who brought out bread and wine, and in parentheses, he was priest of El Elyon, priest of the Most High. Well, Jesus is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek because he is the son of El Elyon. El Elyon means supreme. It means the top. It means there's none other. It means totally and completely sovereign and supreme, the greatest that can possibly be. There is no superlative greater than El Elyon, God most high. And this is the son of God most high. Coming from that place into the womb of a teenage girl in the middle of nowhere in a town that's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. What a tension to represent and tell us that the kingdom of heaven is upon us and is not like any kingdom we've ever seen and he's not like any child that we have ever seen before. So in other words, the, the, the tension is something I want to talk about a little bit later on. But for now, let's just kind of dive on in and see this last discussion of who he is. Because it's, very, it's of great importance also. 
Just look there in the 32nd verse. The Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. We already talked about that just a wee bit. That in order to be the Messiah, in order to be the Messianic King, in order to be what all those prophets have proclaimed will happen, he had to be of the house and the lineage of David, which he was through his father Joseph and perhaps even through his mother Mary. And so therefore, that messianic kingdom that God promised David in the second chapter, I'm sorry, the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel is coming to pass in the person of Jesus Christ. The angel goes on to say that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now, the house of Jacob is an interesting progression. First time we hear about it is way back in um, the uh, the time when um, Jacob is actually headed towards uh, uh, um, Egypt to escape the famine, and 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 uh, it's referred to that seventy people who ended up in in Egypt they're referred to as the house of Jacob. But then when they left four hundred years later, they're a mighty nation of over a million people, and as they stand before the mountain of Horeb as the assembly, the kahal, and we studied that they are the house of Jacob, the children of Israel, the people of God. When we go into a New Testament perspective, Paul says, well, we're the Israel of God. To be a Jew is not to be a Jew outwardly, but to be a Jew inwardly, to be, to be uh, circumcised in the heart. And so therefore, when, when the angel announces that he's going to reign over the house of Jacob, he's going to reign over the kingdom of heaven. He's going to reign over the church. He's going to reign over the people of God. Now, I should tell you that not everyone agrees with that interpretation, uh, especially dispensationalists. They don't like it at all. Or those who lean towards dispensationalism, some of them I greatly respect, like John MacArthur. They see this entirely differently. They see it as a, as a, as a statement that Jesus will, in a millennial kingdom, rule over the, 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 the people of Israel. That it kind of went on hold during the Gentile church. They're going to get raptured and then there's going to be a, um, a, a thousand year kingdom. I don't happen to see it that way. I respect and love those who do see it that way. I don't think we should argue, but I just don't see, I just don't grasp the whole dispensation sensational view of scripture. I see this, and actually either way, I see it as Jesus reigning over the people of God. And the last thing that the angel says about Jesus is that of his kingdom, there will be no end. And even though we see this in several other places, I think that this takes me back to Daniel. And we go back to the seventh chapter of Daniel many, many times. Because that is, uh, after Jesus ascends in Acts, he comes on the cloud of heaven and there he is. We see his coronation after his ascension in the prophecy of Daniel. And this is what it says, just reading one verse out of there. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed so what the angel basically says to mary is this this son he's going to be great 
He is going to be son of El Elyon, the most high God. He is going to be the messianic king of David's kingdom. He is going to rule over the people of God forever and ever. And he's going to be the king of the eschatological kingdom, both in the here and now and the not yet. That's an amazing amount of information in two little verses. But I want to go back and I want to see if we can... Let me admit to you before I even do this that I'm leading you down a path that we cannot, we, we can never understand. What we're getting ready to talk about is something that is beyond the human capacity to grasp. But I want to grapple with it for just a few minutes and then I want to step back and I want to say, well, there's one thing we can do and should do. And, and that is the tension between the son of El Elyon, the second member of the Godhead, from all eternity past, part of the Holy Trinity, entering space and time, and as a fetus in the womb, actually as an egg, as a, in the womb of a virgin teenage girl in the middle of nowhere. I mean, how, how do we reconcile that? Well, Paul tells us. It's, it, it's a doctrine that quite often gets passed over, especially when we talk about the birth of Christ and the incarnation, we tend to pass over the most astounding doctrine of the humiliation. And I know that doesn't right off the bat seem to make sense to a lot of people. What, you're talking about God and humiliation in the same breath? Well, yes, I am, because this is known as the doctrine of humiliation. Paul probably captures it better than anyone in his letter to the Philippians when he wrote this. Out of the second chapter, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, a thing that he would not let go of. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That is subtraction by addition. Doesn't mean that he lost his divinity. He didn't give up his divinity. He added the attributes of humanity and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. He never gave up his divinity, but he took on the attributes of a human. 100% God, 100% man at the same time in the same person. I know the math doesn't work, but that's what scripture teaches us. And then Paul goes on and said, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul maps out the progression that occurs. That on this occasion, at this moment in time, God has ordained from all eternity past that the second member of the Godhead, the son of El Elyon, would take on the attributes of a human being and be placed in the womb of a teenage virgin in the middle of nowhere. And there he would be born. And he would grow up and have a ministry. And that ministry, even though he is God incarnate, that ministry would find him rejected and hated and spit upon and mocked and finally turned over to lawless men, nailed to a cross where God would pour his wrath upon him to punish and pay for the sins of all who would believe in him. And when he had paid for every single one of them, every one of mine, every one of yours, if you trust him, he died there on that cross. His human body burst, his heart burst within him. 
Why would he do that? Why would God do such a thing? Why would the son of El Elyon come here? Well, his name says it all. Yeshua. Yahweh saves. You know, back in Daniel, we read that a lot, don't we? We talk about when Christ takes over his kingdom. But so often we don't read far enough. And we don't recognize what's happening here, folks. Please pay attention. This is what Daniel says in the seventh chapter of the 18th verse. But the saints, that's us. If you're his, if you love Jesus, if you've given your life to him, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, you are a saint in the biblical context. He says, but the saints of the Most High, the saints of El Elyon, shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Why did God become flesh? Why did he come down here? He came down here so that you could inherit his kingdom. As a, as, as a, a grafted in, as someone who is adopted by God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's amazing. That's that's beyond belief that he would come so that I might have a righteousness that I could stand in his presence so that I could inherit his kingdom. He entered space and time from heaven to that little girl out in the, the town of Nazareth. But you know something? He didn't come to rule from the grave, folks. That's, that's not where El Elyon is going to rule from. So when he went into the tomb on the third day, he rose from the dead because he is no dead worldview, ideology, philosophy, thought process, ethical system. He is a living and dynamic God. And he rose from the grave and God said, I did it so that I could tell you that everything he said he would do for you, he will do. Otherwise, I'd have left him in the tomb. He's the son of El Elyon. And his kingdom has come to earth. And it is in the here and now. And it will last forever and ever. As Revelation says, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So I told you several times that we just can't grasp this. If you can grasp it, I want to talk to you. If you can put your head around A God who would do this for you. And if you were the only person on earth, he would do it for you anyway. If you can put your your, your mind around that, then again, I'd like to talk to you. But there's only one thing that I can see that we can respond. There's only one thing that you can do when you consider the tension between heaven and earth, between the son of El Elyon and what he is going to do. And that is to fall on your knees, fall on your face. Worship. You see, that's also what you were made for. And that's another reason that he came, is to complete you, to fulfill you, to give you the ability to do what you were made to do. You can't worship unless you have Christ. You, if there's a hole in you, unless you're reconciled to God, unless you can stand in his presence, you cannot possibly properly worship him. But because of Jesus, because he came, because he fills that void, you now can worship him in the here and now as you will do for an eternity. Brothers and sisters, that's what we do. When you're confronted with this God, when this El Elyon, with this son and what he has done, there is nothing that you can do except 
worship him. So I invite you, I implore you, spend your life as a life of worship. That you will worship him with your heart, that you will worship him with your body, that you will worship him with your mind, that you will worship him with your soul. That you will worship him in what you think, that you will worship him in what you say, that you will worship him in what you do, that you will worship him in your motivations, that you will worship him in your inclinations, that you will worship him right now in the sanctuary, that you will worship him when you leave this place and go into the sewer that is out there in the world, that you will worship him in the here and now, and that you will worship him in the not yet, that you will worship him forever and ever and ever that you would worship the son of El Elyon. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we haven't even talked about deserving or worthiness or um, the lack of merit, our own sinfulness. The years that we spent running from you, turning from you, rebelling against you, rejecting you, and your great mercy in bringing us back to you. But Lord, when we consider what you have done here through this process of the humiliation, uh, we just can't grasp it. It's more than we can grasp. But help us, Lord, to recognize that worship is something we do all the time, not just on Sunday morning. That we're worshipers and that you fulfill the place that is empty, that impedes us from worship. That we would worship you in spirit and truth completely and totally and all of our lives. Therefore, I bring glory to you in completing that which we were made to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.